Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that we get to come here and worship together, that we get to worship you today. Uh, thank you for our worship team, and thank you for the, the job that they do every week. And we just pray now, Lord, that you would fill this place with your spirit, uh, that we would hear your word and hear your truth and be changed because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I titled today's message, The Compromise. Uh, we listened to a coach speak at a football coaching clinic a few years back, and uh, his, his, this particular coach, his message was what he called, it was about guarding against the drift. And this is what he believed that they as coaches would have to do to uh, have a successful season for their team to be successful. Uh, and, and what he meant by that was they would have to stay on top of all of the little things that there was within their team, within their season, within their organization, or those little things would turn into big problems eventually. And no, he didn't believe that um, any one particular player could do just one more rep of something, one more time of doing it, and that would catapult them into greatness. But they, they felt that they had to stay on top of things like making sure that guys did get every rep they were supposed to get, whether that was on the field or in the weight room or, or wherever, making sure that they as coaches had every minute of practice planned out so there was no time for guys to get off track while they were out there in practice. It was a, it was a belief that basically they had set forth these rules and guidelines for their team and that if they allowed those things that they felt were important to be compromised, that it would ruin their team. And we're going to read today in the book of Revelation about how that same type of thing was happening in the early church um, 2,000 years ago and, and still is happening today. So if you would stand with me in, in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a, and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Lord, thank you for your word. Uh, may your word uh, pierce our hearts that your spirit would, would bring the conviction that only you can bring uh, to understand the truth that comes from you and, and what it is within us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So the people at the church at, in Pergamum, um, they were not guarding against the drift as that football coach would, would have said it. Uh, they, were, they were cutting some corners 
by taking part in things and practices that were forbidden by God. They were letting worldliness in and they were becoming okay with it. They were beginning to do what other nations did uh, and it was compromising their relationship with God. Now in verse 13, they are commended. They're commended for upholding the name of Christ. Their church was in the middle of much pagan culture. Uh, Pergamum was the, the capital city of Asia at the time and had been for many years. So there were all walks of life uh, in that area, in the, in the Pergamum area. And because of this, there were many other gods, many pagan gods being worshipped by those all around them. And also there was imperial worship going on. The practice of imperial worship was, was from the Romans. Um, they were not the first to do this. But, but the Romans had begun to worship Caesar as a god. And they required everyone who lived in Roman provinces to do the same, basically. And so Pergamum was within Roman province. And so they were requiring that of, of the, the people in the area of Pergamum. But the church at Pergamum refused to follow that practice. And so this is what Jesus is talking about in verse 13. Uh, they, they stayed faithful to proclaim Jesus as Lord. Uh, they, knowing that it might cost them their lives, it already had cost one of them his life. It says Antipas was killed for his faith right there in verse 13. So they did have something to be commended for there. Uh, but in verse 14 and 15, Jesus brings a charge against them. And what was that charge? It was that they were holding to the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Well, we have to ask them, what were those teachings? And so this goes back to the Old Testament. When the nation of Israel was, was on their journey that God was leading them eventually to the promised land, along the way they had many wars and battles with other nations, and they were conquering these other nations uh, because by God's providence he was leading them where he wanted them to go. And so they were victorious in these battles as long as they followed God's instructions and commands. And commands. Uh, in the book of Numbers, we see the story of the Israelites' encounter with King Balak, the king of the Moabites. The Israelites had just decimated the Amorites and the king of uh, Bashan, and so as they approached the land of Moab, uh, the king, King Balak of Moab, is scared. He uh, is, is in fear of what's fixing to happen uh, because he does not believe that they can defeat them as, as it appears that nobody else can. So what he does is he sends for Balaam the prophet. And Balaam is from another town, but, but he sends for him to come. And what he wants Balaam to do is come and put a curse on the nation of Israel so that it will make it easier for him and his army to defeat them. But uh, Balaam refuses to do that. Uh, instead, Balaam actually blesses the nation of Israel with his mouth because he's a prophet and that is what God told him to say. And so as you're, as you're reading this story, it seems that all is well with the nation of Israel. Uh, the, the prophet has come to curse them, but he won't do it. He just continues to bless them because he will only speak the words that God gives him to speak. And so it appears that things are, are right for the Israelites, but they're not. What we read next in that story is that something different was going on aside from that. 
uh, there was another plan being devised, and it was a plan to trick the Israelites instead of trying to conquer them in battle. And the plan was this. The, the Moabite women would go and seduce the Israelite men, and it worked. Uh, the men, the Israelite men, began committing adultery with the Moabite women, and they also began eating the foods that were sacrificed to the Moabite gods in, in this process. And so we find out later in the book of Numbers that this whole plan, this secretive plan, was devised by Balaam, the same guy, the prophet, who would only speak the words that God gave him. And so up front, he is speaking what God gives him to speak, but when nobody's looking, he's devising this evil plan. Warren Wiersbe, who was a Christian writer and speaker, when he was speaking of the Israelites in this particular situation, he said this, Satan had not been able to destroy them by coming as the roaring lion, but he was making inroads as the deceiving serpent. And this is what Jesus is warning the church at Pergamum of in Revelation. They refused to outright deny Jesus. They continued to proclaim Jesus as Lord, and they would not proclaim anybody else or any other thing as Lord. And so he commends them for that. But they were practicing things that went against God's word. They were participating with the Romans in some of their pagan practices because uh, mostly to make peace with them because they knew that they were in fear of their lives uh, proclaiming Jesus as Lord and not proclaiming Caesar as Lord. So they are participating in some things that go against God's word to make peace with the Romans. And these things were separating them from God even though that they, they didn't realize or didn't think so. And so I, as I read that, I think, how does that kind of thing happen? It appears to have happened kind of subtly. It, it wasn't that they were overpowered or, or taken over by a nation, as they were at other times in Old Testament history, because they did not follow God's teaching, God's word. But, but this happened more subtle. And so how does that happen to God's people? And to answer that, if I was to sum that up in one word, the word that I would use there is tolerance. Tolerance today in our world is, is considered a virtue. It's something that we teach and that we, we want to have and we teach our kids. And it's something that we strive for, to be tolerant of all peoples. And tolerance can be a virtue. Oftentimes it is, but tolerance can also be a sin. And you actually see this in the early church Often, if you read in the Old Testament, um, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament. And it would be best explained as this. What was first tolerated as unbiblical practices eventually became unbiblical principles. Uh, because the people compromised what they believed in, these things that they knew to be wrong eventually just became the norm. And those same type of things still happen today in our world. Uh, it, and it happens so easily. And, and we should take note also that it is a short step from compromising with the world to just forsaking God altogether. And we are all guilty of it. Actually, we are all guilty of committing adultery. And, and you might say, wait, that's a pretty strong accusation. I've never committed adultery. Well, go to the book of James with me for just a minute, and I want to read what James has to say about that. 
James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? There, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James is talking to us, the church. Why does he use that strong language? Why does he call us adulteresses? Well, first of all, it's because he wants us to recognize the severity of the accusation. He wants us to feel that it is, it is a severe thing, that he, he is not taking this lightly, that um, he would call us such a word as adulteresses. The real reason for that is because Jesus describes himself as the groom and he describes his church as the bride. And he relates to marriage in this way because, because the relationship between Jesus and a believer should be as close and intimate as the relationship between a husband and a wife. Two shall become one. So when we claim Jesus as our Savior, but we compromise with the world's view and the world's way of doing things, or, or we lust after the things that are in this world, then we are committing adultery against our Lord. That is what James is saying. And we've all done these things. Uh, at least I have, and I, I don't believe I'm alone in that. How many of us have ever read the Bible to our kids at night, and once we got them to sleep, went back to the living room to watch our favorite show, which turns out to be complete trash? Or um, how many of us would listen to different kinds of music depending on if we were with our children or with uh, maybe people that we go to church with or teenagers if you were with your parents? Uh, because the music that we like is actually pretty filthy. Or how many of us change the way we talk uh, because of who we are around at the time? And so as I was reading and thinking about these things, I remembered a long time ago, years ago, Coach Giltner and I were talking, just, just chit-chatting, you know, while we were coaching together. And... He was telling me about a guy that he went to college with, and they, him and some of his you know, closer friends, they referred to this guy that, was, that would hang out with him sometimes as a chameleon. And, and the reason is, he said that if they, if they were going here to hang out with these, this group of people, he would dress, act, talk a certain way. And, but if they were going here to hang out with this other group of people, he would dress, act, and talk completely different than that, like he was a whole other person. And as I was thinking about that, I thought, you know, we've all uh, done that to some extent. And in doing that, sometimes we've even compromised uh, what we know to be right just to fit in. Uh, and, and a few weeks ago in school, uh, Coach Barker came to my room and got uh, one of my students. He asked, can I borrow one of your students? So he borrows one of my students and he takes over to his room and his class, he's got a He's teaching a psychology class, and he's doing a little psychology experiment. And uh, he's got on the board, he posted this question on the board. I, don't even, I wasn't in the room, so I don't know what the question was. But it was a multiple-choice question, and his class, he asked the question, and his class raises their hand as option B or answer B is the answer. And my student is, like, hesitant, but she raises her hand for option B also. And she comes back to the room. She's so disappointed in herself. And I'm like... Why? Like, what, what happened? She's like, well, the qu I, I don't even know what the question was, but 
she says the question, and, I, and she said, and I knew what the answer was, but everybody else in the class said the answer was B, and, and I knew it was C, but I raised my hand for B because everybody else did. And it was an experiment to see if, you know, how often would a person do that? And I thought, wow, that's a good lesson for all of us in our everyday life. Um, oftentimes, afterwards, we see, we, we recognize and we regret the choice we made because we made it just simply because everybody else was making that choice even though we knew it wasn't the right answer. Uh, another example of a different type of compromising is in one of my favorite movies, Braveheart. And I know that, that Braveheart is not the true story of, of the person William Wallace in real life, but it's still a good movie. Um, the compromising that happens in that movie is in this scene. Um, it's, it's, the compromise is for the purpose of gain. Uh, not... not to go along with everybody else, but, but to gain from something. And in the scene, Robert the Bruce is the leader of the noblemen of Scotland, and he goes to his father because William Wallace has started a rebellion. And he asks his father, what, what do I need to do about this? You know, what do I need to do in this situation? He has started this rebellion, and people are gathering behind him. And his father says, what you must do in this situation is survive. And to survive, you must compromise. And so his father says this, you admire this man, this William Wallace. Uncompromising men are easy to admire. He has courage, so does a dog. But it is exactly the ability, the ability to compromise that makes a man noble. Well, Robert the Bruce goes on and, and follows his father's advice and what it leads to eventually is him selling out William Wallace and then Afterwards, Robert the Bruce recognizes the severity of his mistake. And I wonder sometimes, uh, is that a term that Jesus would use to describe me or to describe us as believers? Would he use the word sellout whenever we Compromise what we know is right. Fortunately, Jesus does not end the letter to the church there. He goes on, along with the charge that he brings against them, he goes on to give them the solution. And the solution is, is actually quite simple. It's one word, repent. Revelation 2.16 says... Repent, therefore, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Jesus says he is going to make war with those who put stumbling blocks before God's children. And then he goes on after that to finish that letter with a promise. Verse 17 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Now the phrase, to him who overcomes, does not mean him who does this great thing by defeating evil in and of himself. It just simply means him who stays faithful. 
to him, Jesus will give the manna and the white stone with a new name on it. Now, we know that the, the manna is the bread that God sent from heaven to his people while they were in the wilderness. And we know that he did that to show them that he was what they really needed, that he would provide their every need and sustain them in every way. So what, is, what does Jesus mean by hidden manna? Well, in the book of John, chapter 6, verses 32 through 35, it says this, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread of, out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. They said therefore to him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. The hidden manna is him. Jesus is telling us that he is all that we will ever need. And those who come to him will receive him. Now, there's much speculation over the white stone uh, and what its symbolism is, but it does appear that it is a sort of admittance ticket into heaven. Um, most scholars agree, most Bible scholars agree on just on that fact, but, but what, it symboliz- what it is actually symbolizing, there's a, there's a lot of different views on that, but... Most believe that it is, it is representing an admittance ticket because it has our new name on it. Because he puts that in there that it has our new name on it. Uh, much of the, there, there's much, many places in the Bible that talk about our new name. Uh, the book of Isaiah mentions it uh, several times. So one, one example that I'm going to give you is Isaiah 56, 5. And it says, To them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial. And a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. What he gives us can never be taken away. And because of that, we should never compromise with the world. Because what we are really compromising is our relationship with him. So, if you need to come and repent and be saved, come. Or if you're like me and you need to repent... uh, for your tendency to want to be like the world, then come. Jesus is waiting, and he, he tells us that he is faithful and just to forgive us when we confess to him. So as our, as our band comes up, um, I'll pray, um, and, and if you need to come and, and repent or ask for forgiveness, then come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. May your spirit touch our hearts and and correct us where we need corrected, Lord. We pray that you would make us more like Jesus. And we know that, that to be more like Jesus, it involves correction. And we don't always like that. That's not always pleasant. But even so, we welcome your spirit to come and do what he does in our hearts.
because it is our true desire to be more like Christ. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen.